0: Thank you very much. I'm Philip Emagwale. I began my quest for the fastest supercomputer in Nigeria, Africa, and began as a human computer that computed with his brain. Back in St. John's Primary School, Abo, Nigeria, Africa, I developed an interest in doing the fastest arithmetical computations. Using only my brain, but I was not fast enough as someone using a computer. I needed to perform the fastest calculations in the world. For that reason, I had to perform the fastest calculations on a supercomputer or the fastest computer in the world. The supercomputer that was the fastest computer in the world that I began programming at age 19 and on June 20, 1974, in Corvallis, Oregon, United States, was different from the modern supercomputer. To invent is to create something out of nothing. Back in 1974, the supercomputer computed with only one processor, or with only one electronic brain, one processor is not fast enough to solve my problems. During the 15 years following June 20, 1974, that I began programming supercomputers, I figured out how to perform the fastest calculations and how to do so across a new internet that I visualized and programmed as a new global network of 65,536 processors, or as many tiny computers. That new supercomputer encircled a globe and encircled it in the manner the internet encircled a globe. The faster the supercomputer the more problems it can solve, the faster the fastest supercomputer can occupy the space of a football field. I discovered that using only one processor to solve the toughest problems was like putting the wings of a jet aircraft upon an ocean liner. I am a supercomputer scientist. The supercomputer is the fastest computer. The supercomputer was invented to be used to perform the fastest calculations in arithmetic. Such calculations must be performed to solve the toughest problems arising in science and mathematics. In 1989, I invented how to use a new internet. That is a new global network of 65,536 processors or a new global network of 65,536 computers. And I figured out how to use that new internet as a new supercomputer that can perform calculations in arithmetic. And I figured out how to perform such calculations, and how to do so 65,536 times faster than one computer solving the same problem alone. I visualized that fastest supercomputer as a new internet that is powered by 65,000 536 tiny computers that encircled a globe and that solved 65,536 tough problems at once. At that time, it was believed that it will be impossible to solve the toughest problems arising in science and mathematics and solve them 65,536 times faster. And the supercomputer scientist that was in the news back in 1989 for figuring out how and why computing many things at once makes computers faster and makes supercomputers fastest, namely the Philip M. M. Aguile formula that then U.S. President Bill Clinton described in his White House speech of August 26, 2000. The reason my contributions to the development of the computer made the news headlines in 1989 was that it changed the way we think about the supercomputer. After 1989, we think of the supercomputer not as solving only one problem at a time, but as solving one million problems at once. As a technological inventor, I created something, namely a new internet that is a new supercomputer that could have been created but was not created. By seeing something where nothing existed, the discoverers and inventors made darkness visible. I crossed The frontiers of knowledge to see a new internet that was previously unseen. The pioneer in computing is the supercomputer inventor that made the news headlines and became famous for showing other supercomputer scientists that the impossible is, in fact, possible. The pioneer in computing, used a never-before-seen supercomputer and used that new technology to make the impossible to solve possible to solve. Back in 1989 and earlier, the leaders in the field of computing believed that it will forever remain impossible. use 8 processors, each akin to a tiny computer, and use them to cooperatively solve the toughest problems arising in science and mathematics. I am a pioneer in computing because in 1989 it made the news headlines that an African supercomputer wizard in the United States had used 65,000 536 tiny computers to solve the toughest problems arising in science and mathematics. Those problems we are called the grand challenges of computing. I am that African supercomputer scientist that solved the grand challenge problem of computing. I am a pioneer in computing because I was the first supercomputer scientists to explore or settle in the new land of the new supercomputers that computed 65,536 things at once. I am a pioneer in computing because back in the 1980s, there was only one supercomputer in the world that was computing with 65,536 processors or 65,536 tiny computers. That never-before-seen supercomputer only allowed one full-time programmer to program it at a time. I was the only full-time programmer that used that supercomputer at all times. I am considered a pioneer in computing because I was the only full-time programmer of that first modern supercomputer. But more importantly, I am a pioneer in computing because I contributed new knowledge to computer science. That new knowledge was my invention that was completed on the 4th of July, 1989. That pioneering invention won me the top prize in supercomputing and made the news headlines. That pioneering invention was how to use a new global network of 65,536 processors or computers or a new internet and how to use that new technology to solve the toughest problems arising. In science and mathematics. That is the reason I am the subject of school reports as a pioneer in computing. I'm a super computer scientist. I am a pioneer in computing because there was no instruction manual on how to harness the power of the at that time never before seen supercomputer that could solve 65536 problems at once and that was abandoned for me to program alone nor was there a help desk that could explain how i could send and receive at the same time 64 binary thousand emails Back on June 20, 1974, when I began to program supercomputers that only solved one problem at a time, there were an average of 24 programmers logged into the supercomputer that I was programming. Those were the good old days when it was possible to program the world's fastest supercomputer and do so alone. On June 20, 1974, in Corvallis, Oregon, United States, I even had a supercomputer instructor, had a supercomputer instruction manual, and a supercomputer help desk. But a decade and a half onward of June 20, 1974, in Los Alamos, New Mexico, United States, I was the lone wolf programmer, that was at the farthest frontier, that was the supercomputer that could solve the most challenging problems at once. For that experimental supercomputer of the 1980s, only one person can control its 65,536 processors. Only one person can lock all its processors and lock them simultaneously. I was the lone wolf that was at the farthest frontier of the massively parallel processing supercomputer. I was the supercomputer scientist that controlled all those 65,536 processors and controlled them at all times. I'm a supercomputer scientist. You become a computer scientist by learning about computers and doing so for four or more years. On the other hand, you only become a supercomputer scientist by programming the fastest supercomputers in the world and by developing the reputation as one of the best supercomputer scientists. The fastest supercomputers that I programmed costs the budget of a small nation. For that reason, to become a supercomputer scientist required that I live and work in rich nations, such as the United States. When I was born, there was no supercomputer in Africa. I was born on August 23, 1954 in Akure, Nigeria, Africa. I was the oldest of nine children in my family. My father, Nemeka James Emagwale, was a nurse, and my mother, Inyama Agata Emagwale, was a homemaker. In 1954, the word computer was not in the vocabulary of any Nigerian newspaper. In 1954, to say that I would become a supercomputer scientist will make as much sense as saying that I would travel to the moon. Because there was no supercomputer in Africa, I could not become a supercomputer scientist in Akure, Nigeria, Africa, where I was born in 1954. On the other side of the world, Los Alamos, New Mexico, United States is the capital of the world of supercomputers. My struggles to become a supercomputer scientist was a technological quest to traverse the 7,000 miles and the Atlantic Ocean that separates Akure, Nigeria, Africa from Los Alamos, New Mexico, United States. The Nigeria Biafra war began on July 6, 1967, and ended on on January 15, 1970. One in 15 Biafrans died in that 30-month-long war. During the Nigeria Biafra war, all schools in Biafra were closed. I came to the United States on March 24. 1974 at age 19. Due to the Nigerian Civil War, I was enrolled in school for only one and a half years of the six years that preceded my arrival in the United States. For that reason, I had to teach myself mathematics and physics and do so during those six war related years. Mathematical physics is the bedrock of the supercomputer. My quest was for the then-never-before-seen supercomputer that could solve many problems at once. When I began that quest on June 20, 1974, I didn't have a map and a guide to the land of the never-before-seen supercomputers that could solve many problems at once. Because I didn't know exactly where to discover that new supercomputer, I followed a zigzag path and I traveled 70,000 miles to cover the 7,000 miles between Nigeria and the United States and become the supercomputer scientist that figured out how to solve 65,536 problems at once. In my 35-year-long trip from 1954 in Nigeria to 1989 in the United States, my final destination was the frontier of human knowledge where we could solve millions upon millions of problems at once. In those three and a half decades, I had a three-year-long stopover as a 12-year-old refugee that lived in refugee camps in Biafra. I had a six-month-long stopover as a 14-year-old soldier in the Biafran army. One in 15 Biafrans died during the 30-month-long Nigeria-Biafra War. I had a dozen stopovers in American cities between covallis Oregon, where I began supercomputing on June 20, 1974, to Los Alamos, New Mexico, where I figured out how to compute across a new internet. That is a new global network of 65,536 processors. I invented the technology on the 4th of July, 1989. I visualized that small internet as my room sized copy, as my room sized copy of the internet that encircles the planetary-sized Earth. My struggle to become a pioneer of the supercomputer was a struggle from being the last in computing to becoming the first in supercomputing. In the year 1960, I failed and I came last in all three terminal examinations of my first-grade class in St. Patrick's Primary School, Sapele, Nigeria. That failure made my father unhappy. To help me do better in school, my father taught me in the evenings and gave me extra homework with my, with my father's guidance and daily tutoring. I became a much better student. I was a good student because I studied long hours and I did my own science experiments. I was curious about mathematics and physics which other children found difficult and boring. My childhood was difficult because of the violence and the revolts that erupted in the streets of Nigeria in the late 1960s. The 30-month-long Nigeria-Biafra War forced my family to flee and live in refugee camps in Nigeria and Biafra. Due to the Nigeria-Biafra War, I could only attend school for one and a half years between the ages of 12 and 19. The reason was in part because during the Nigeria-Biafra War, all the schools in Biafra we are closed and used as military barracks and refugee camps. All inventors must go to school to acquire the knowledge they must have in order to contribute their new knowledge or inventions to existing knowledge. A refugee child that could not go to school cannot grow up to become the inventor of a never-before-seen supercomputer. On my 14th birthday date, August 23, 1968, my family of nine refugees were living and sleeping in a very tiny classroom of a closed school that was formerly named St. Joseph's Secondary School, or KTT, Biafra. In the late 1960s, St. Joseph's Secondary School became an overcrowded refugee camp. For three war years, the former students of St. Joseph's Secondary School were forced to quit school and forced to give up their classrooms to a thousand refugees that fled from Asaba and Onicha, including my family of nine refugees. The former teachers of Saint Joseph Secondary School. We are forced to join the Biafran Army. Some of those Biafran teachers died fighting at the Onecha War Front. On January 19, 1968, the day Oka Biafra was captured by the second division of the Nigerian Army we fled a few hours before Oka was captured and fled to become refugees at 14 Mbar Road on Echa, Biafra. The famous English spy Frederick Forsyth and author of the best-selling book The Dogs of War was a journalist in Biafra and the author of the book The Biafra Story. Frederick Forsyth told our refugee camp in Oka, Biafra, and told it after our camp was captured by the Nigerian army. Frederick Forsyth reported in his book, The Biafra Story, and I quote At Oka, I saw the corpses. Of the occupants of a refugee camp. The men folk had had their hands tied before shooting. To judge from appearances, the women had been subjected to appalling mutilations, either before or after death. The bullet-broken bodies of the children lay scattered like dolls in the long grass. End of quote. Please allow me to quote an eyewitness account that was titled Nightmare in Biafra. This eyewitness account of the night of March 20, 1968 that we fled on each Biafra appeared in the Sunday Times of London, England and appeared on page 12 of the April 26, 1968 issue. And I quote, I have seen things in Biafra this week which no man should have to see. Sights to search the heart and seeking the conscience. I have seen children roasted alive, young girls torn in two by shrapnel, pregnant women eviscerated, and old men blown to fragments. I have seen these things And I have seen their course. High-flying Russian illusion jets operated by federal Nigeria dropping their bombs on civilian centers throughout Biafra. End of quote. The war correspondent that wrote the article Nightmare in Biafra continued, And I quote, At Onicha, under siege from the federal troops, the 300 strong congregation of the apostolic church decided to stay on while others fled and to pray for deliverance. Colonel Mohammed's second division found them in the church, dragged them out tied their hands behind their backs and executed them. End of quote. During the civil war between Nigeria and Biafra, I was 12 years old to 15 years old. My family were refugees and lived in refugee camps. In July 1969, I was conscripted at gunpoint and forced to become a 14-year-old soldier in the Biafran army. I was sent directly and without military training to the Oguta war front. Oguta was a 20-hour non-stop walk through a swampy knee-deep mosquito and alligator-infested waters. The mosquitoes burst louder in my ears than a jet fighter. I was more likely to be ambushed by alligators than ambushed by Nigerian soldiers. I arrived at the Oguta War Front a few days after 500 Biafran soldiers fell on the ground and fell as if they were dry leaves. I was conscripted to replace one of the five hundred men that died. At Oguta Warfront, there were more guns than pens. My struggle was to reach a new land where science fiction becomes non-fiction. My struggle was to understand the fastest supercomputer that everyone else, everybody else misunderstood as the slowest computer. To invent is to understand something that was misunderstood and understand it in a new way. I understood a new global network of the slowest processors as a new internet that was misunderstood as something else. I understood the technology as a new supercomputer that encircled a globe and encircled it in the manner the internet encircled a globe. I was the first super computer scientist to understand that new technology to be a new internet. It made the news headlines that I had discovered that the impossible to compute is in fact possible to compute. Once upon a time, it was believed that To solve millions of problems at once, instead of solving only one problem at a time, was a huge waste of everybody's time. Once upon a time, the fastest supercomputers in the world performed their fastest computations on only one processor. Today. The fastest supercomputers in the world perform their fastest computations and perform them across millions of processors. The way we think about the computer and the supercomputer changed after my discovery that we can solve millions of problems at once. That discovery occurred on the 4th of July, 1989. That discovery convinced the world of supercomputing to change the way it thought about the computer and change the way it thought about the supercomputer and change, and change its long-held opinion that solving millions of problems at once is a huge waste of everybody's time. Yet Solving millions of problems at once is easier said than done or easier theorized than discovered. A theory is an idea that is not positively true. I discovered that solving millions of problems at once is not a huge waste of everybody's time. as an inventor that came of age in the 1970s and 80s i was searching for new things and searching for new knowledge and searching for that knowledge alone i was searching alone not by choice i did my search alone because i was scorned ridiculed and rejected I was dismissed from white research teams, according to an Igbo-African proverb, quote, A new fowl in a new land looks at the old fowls to learn how to grow in their new language, unquote. I was dismissed because I was the new fowl in the new land of the modern supercomputer. Back on June 20, 1974, I was the new fowl in the new land of the old supercomputer that solved only one problem at a time. I did not learn from the old fowls how to crow or program an isolated processor that defined the old supercomputer. Also, also, I am well known, but I am not known well. In the nineteen seventies and eighties, I was punished and ostracized for challenging the belief. Of the supercomputer world that all supercomputers should be powered by only one isolated processor. I was called a lunatic in November 1982 after I gave a lecture on how to use 65,536 processors to solve the toughest problems arising in science and mathematics. In 1982, everybody else believe that parallel processing was a huge waste of everybody's time. For that reason, only one young scientist attended my 1982 lecture, November 1982 lecture, on how to solve the toughest problems arising in science and mathematics, and how to solve it across an ensemble of 65,536 processors that were identical and equal distances apart. To discover or invent is to make the impossible possible. To invent is to turn fiction into fact. The invention of A faster supercomputer will increase our level of civilization and enable our children to do better than us. The supercomputer was not invented by super intelligent aliens from the moon. The supercomputer was invented by former second graders. The second grader of today will Turn her teacher's science fiction to their day-to-day technologies. The supercomputer of tomorrow will be invented by the second grader of today. My message to second graders is this. The genius is the ordinary person that found the extraordinary in the ordinary. The second grader will have the courage to challenge the old thinking, will ask new questions and will think new thoughts. The inventor embarked upon a hero's quest to hear something that was previously unheard, to see something that was previously unseen and to understand something that was previously misunderstood. The second grader will make the world a better world and a more knowledgeable world. Trying to understand the future without the contributions of the second grader is like looking at an embroidery from the wrong side of the cloth. Knowledge grows with time. The second grader will grow up to have more knowledge than her teacher. The second grader will grow up to have more knowledge than her teacher. The second grader is the future inventor that will turn our fiction to fact. The second grader will invent the first cyborg. A cyborg is part human, part machine, and part computer. The word computer first appeared in print 2,000 years ago. Each generation redefined the word computer. Our descendants' definition of the computer will change to, perhaps, become synonymous, and correspond to our phrase, planetary side super brain that enshrouds our Earth. In 1000 years, I foresee second graders as super intelligent cyborgs that are part human, part machine, and part computer, with a great sense of humor. I foresee children of the distant future to be half humans and half thinking machines. I believe that the grandchildren of our grandchildren will not use their internet the way we use our internet. Their internet will be within them while our internet is around us. They will not need supercomputers because there will be the supercomputers. I learned the timetable of arithmetic at age five. My quest for the fastest calculations was also, was also to figure out how to make the impossible to multiply possible to multiply, namely figure out how to use 65,536 tiny computers and use them to solve the toughest problems. That was a journey to the frontier of fastest time stabling. In first grade, I dreaded mathematics and I was the worst student. My father, Nameka James Emagwale, demanded that I study 20 times longer than my classmates. And I did so by solving 100 additional arithmetical problems each evening. My elementary school classmates only solved five problems each day. Studying 20 times longer than my classmates was why and how. I became the best student at later schools that I attended. The African mathematician Euclid is considered the father of geometry. In North Africa, and 300 years before Jesus Christ was born, a young prince studying geometry asked his teacher Euclid for an easier way to understand geometry. Euclid replied, there is no royal road to geometry. As a supercomputer scientist, the most important lesson that I learned was that you cannot become the highest supercomputer wizard without foremost applying sitting power, or sitting the longest in front of supercomputers, or sitting longer than any supercomputer scientist ever sat in front of supercomputers. The fastest supercomputer in the world occupies the space of a soccer field and requires building a new multi-story facility to house the millions upon millions of commodity processors that will enable it to execute the fastest computations. The supercomputer is to me what the violin is to the violinist. A friend who is a musician told me that a violinist must mostly practice and not mostly read her music. The violinist must go beyond only reading her music on her airplane flight to perform in Carnegie Hall of New York City. The violinist must apply her sitting power to get to Carnegie Hall. This important lesson of hard work, dedication, discipline, consistency, and practice applies to everything we do in life. You must play or think or dream soccer every day to play soccer in the next world cup you must write every day to write the next best-selling novel you must write at least a million words before you can call yourself a writer i wrote a million words of super computer codes before the newspapers called Philip Emma the African Supercomputer Wizard. A student writing a school report on Philip Emma asked me, What course do I study to become a Supercomputer Wizard like you? That's like asking, what book to read to become a violin virtuoso. I replied, a passenger carrying her violin. Asked a New York City taxi driver, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice was the reply the New York City taxi driver gave the violinist. I learned that the answers to the biggest questions don't come easy. When I visit the public libraries in the United States, I often run into elementary school students or middle school students or high school students doing research reports doing research for their school reports some school reports were titled famous scientists and their discoveries or great inventors and their inventions since my invention of the massively parallel processing supercomputer that occurred on the 4th of July 1989 and that made the news headlines, thereafter, many school reports had a title The Contributions of Philip Emma Aguale to the Development of the Computer. I encourage children to continue their education By visiting their schools and sharing my struggles with them, I encourage children to study science by replying their emails and returning some of their telephone calls. However, most children assume that I am dead and for that reason, do not write me. Children assume that I am dead because most famous scientists, like Archimedes. Galileo and Isaac Newton died centuries ago and only exist in old films and textbooks. It matters that my contribution to the development of the fastest supercomputers is studied in American schools. It matters because eventually students of today will be the teachers of tomorrow. Eventually, teachers of yesterday will be companions to the 17th century Isaac Newton. So I understood how important it will be for young black African Americans to see another black African American making a contribution to the development of the supercomputer. I discovered that it was not just for young black African-Americans to see me in a leading role, but for old white European-American scientists to get accustomed to a young black African-American as their scientific role model. I'm not surprised that most students writing a school report on Philip M. Aguale assumed at the beginning that I died centuries ago. One student that wrote a school report on Philip Emagwale was surprised to see me playing soccer with her father. And it resonates when a kid sees the inventor in her school report playing soccer with her father. I was in the public library in Baltimore, Maryland when I saw a 12-year-old and observed that he was writing a school report on Philip Emagwale. To encourage him in his education and study of science, I put my hand on his shoulder and said, Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm Philip Emagwale. He reacted as if I was a ghost. I thought you were dead, the 12-year-old asked in disbelief. A year later, I saw him again. What did your teacher say about your school report on me, I asked. My teacher said, Anthony, you don't need to lie. That Philip Emagwale put his hand on your shoulder. My wife Dale was born on the 24th of December 1954 in Baltimore, Maryland, United States. We met in Baltimore, Maryland at 9.45 in the morning on the second Tuesday in June 1978. Dale and I got married on August 15, 1981, and had a son named Ijoma on June 15, 1990. My wife is a molecular biologist. She is best known for her contributions to cancer research. Ijoma is a computer scientist that earlier worked at Microsoft and Google. First, I lived in a refugee camp for the last 30 months of the 1960s. Second, I was a 14 year old soldier in a battlefield where 500 soldiers were killed a month earlier. Third, I was a tennis player who defeated the number one seeded players in university tennis teams. As a tennis player, I got mentioned in local newspapers. Fourth, back in the mid 1970s, I was trained as an astronomer. Two decades later, NASA considered me to become the first African born astronaut. Thank you very much. Thank you. Insightful and brilliant lecture. Insightful and brilliant lecture.